Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Daring foreign assassinations of dissidents by nefarious regimes are the stuff of spy novels. In real life, they're rare. These days, exploitation of extradition laws is more common, alongside subtler and simpler forms of repression and surveillance abroad. And good luck getting a cheap car in Algeria. Plummeting foreign reserves have forced the country to crimp imports of all sorts. Following a failed effort to spin up a domestic car industry, a set of wheels is increasingly hard to come by. But first... Ladies and gentlemen, dear friends, good afternoon. Welcome to the press conference of Joint Expert Team of China WHO SARS-CoV-2. In Wuhan yesterday, the World Health Organization reported its initial conclusions from its first fact-finding mission to the region to determine the origins of the coronavirus. I would like to salute those who we have seen every day following us on cold days, for long hours, in the rain and bad weather. The WHO has long been attempting to gather more clues on how the virus got its start and how it eventually passed into humans. But after much backroom dealing, researchers were only allowed into China in January. In the interim, there's been widespread theorizing. Some believe the answer involves bats because they harbor a variety of related viruses, like that which causes SARS. Then there's the Huanan seafood market, the first known center of the outbreak. Others have gone further, suggesting a laboratory accident hushed up by the state. Conspiracies have swirled around the Chinese state-backed lab. It's thought to have conducted research into diseases in bats. Multiple sources say this may be the costliest government cover-up of all time by China. While the WHO mission has not yet come to a definitive conclusion, there's clearly been progress. The WHO has been trying to get back into China to find out more about the origins of COVID-19 pretty much through most of last year. They finally got permission to go in. Natasha Loder is our health policy editor. The team had two main objectives. They wanted to find out whether they could move the history of the outbreak, the timeline, a little bit back beyond the dates in December that we already had. And they also wanted to try and figure out a bit more or find out how, indeed, the disease jumped into humans in the first place. And did they find answers to those questions? So the team gave a press conference yesterday. It was Peter Benenbarak from WHO who told us the first interesting finding. And the conclusion was that we did not find evidence of large outbreaks of, that could be related to uh, cases of COVID-19 prior to December 19 in Wuhan or elsewhere. 
the disease had not been spreading silently throughout the population at large prior to December. They did find evidence of it circulating much more widely, um, but not beyond Wuhan and in other cities. So that's quite an important finding because it was always a possibility that the disease had been spreading cryptically throughout China, in fact, possibly even other countries prior to December and then perhaps in December something had happened. Well, that doesn't seem to be the case. Beyond that, they did come up with four ideas about how the disease might have jumped into humans. And what are those? So the first one was a direct transmission from bats. So that would be a spillover event where a virus transmitted between a bat and a human. And that's absolutely possible, but it's seen as a little bit unlikely because there aren't any bats in Wuhan. The second one was an introduction through an intermediary species. So a virus can jump from a bat to another species and into a human. The third idea was that it may have come through the food chain. And the fourth one is a laboratory accident. And having looked at them all, they feel that the intermediary species theory remains the most likely. They don't know what the intermediary species is. It could be civet cats, it could be rats, it could be pangolins. And connected to that, they're also looking into the idea that possibly even some kind of frozen food product from some wild animal could have been the source of the sort of intermediate virus. Because, of course, we know that the Hunan market did sell frozen food, although the role of that market in the outbreak still remains unclear. So the theory that the outbreak was down to a lab accident, that's completely discounted now? So they certainly said it was unlikely in their opinion. We also looked, for example, at the Wuhan Institute of Virology and the state of that laboratory, and it was very unlikely that anything could escape from such a place. They didn't rule it out. They did say they wouldn't be following it up. That's a long way from saying that it didn't come from a laboratory. And we all love this hypothesis. Isn't it wonderful that actually it's not something boring like it came from a civic cat or a pangolin or something like that? Something much more exciting that they were cooking something up secretly in a laboratory and it leaked out and caused this global pandemic. Well, yeah, it would be a great story. But at the moment, there's very little evidence for that. And so my feeling is that it's absolutely right for WHO to continue to pursue the main lines of inquiry. But like I say, Nobody's completely ruled out a lab leak. It's just less likely. And so how much access were the WHO team actually allowed to to carry out this investigation? Well, in the face of it, they got quite a lot. They even got to go to the Wuhan Institute of Virology, which, of course, has been the centre of all these conspiracy theories about laboratory leaks. The Chinese obviously want to convey the impression that they are being open and they're allowing a foreign team into China. But there's clearly a lot of sensitivities The negotiations seem to have taken a long, long, long time, and it obviously was difficult to arrange. It's hard to really judge. I mean, maybe we'll get a fuller account when the team gets back of whether they got to go everywhere they wanted to go. So maybe when they leave China, the team will be able to say more about that. So with these hypotheses in hand, then what happens next? Well, there's a number of theories that need to be followed up. They're going to need to sample bats outside China to find out if There are viral sequences that look more similar to SARS-CoV-2 than what we find in China. There's going to be some work done on the frozen cold chain, looking at foods coming in, 
from various places and suppliers. They're also going to be looking at the farming of wild animals in China and whether that could be a source of transmission as well. And as answers to all those questions start to spill out, there's too much. You've now got your own podcast to cover this stuff. Yes, I have. It's called The Jab, and it's about the sharp end of the global vaccination race. We'll be using colleagues from across The Economist science team, correspondents around the world, everything vaccine from rollout to distribution to hesitancy. And the first episode is out on Monday. And it's in The Economist's radio feed or wherever you get your podcasts. Natasha, thanks very much for joining us and and, uh, I look forward to listening. Thank you so much, Jason. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. A murder in Istanbul, an abduction in Dubai, a deportation from Austria. What do these incidents have in common? They're all part of a disturbing pattern of behavior by authoritarian regimes, which are cracking down on dissent abroad. Overseas repression is nothing new. In 1940, Leon Trotsky was in Mexico City, more than 10,000 kilometers from Moscow, when Joseph Stalin had him murdered with an ice pick. But what's changed is this. It's getting easier and cheaper for rogue regimes to snoop on dissidents from afar. Transnational repression is when states use violence and intimidation to try and silence their own citizens abroad. Georgia Banjo writes about foreign affairs for The Economist. And according to a report by Freedom House, this sort of behaviour is increasingly common. They found many, many incidents of direct attacks by 31 states since 2014. And they're saying that millions of people are also being threatened online, harassed and intimidated by states beyond their own borders. So this sounds like the behaviour of authoritarian states, then. Is is that who's carrying out these kinds of attacks? Yeah, so mostly that's true. I mean, we have to say that lots of states have engaged in this behaviour. But China, Russia, Rwanda, Saudi Arabia, Iran and Turkey are all some of the biggest culprits. China attacks the widest variety of people. They go after religious and ethnic minorities like the Uyghurs and the Tibetans. But they also go after human rights activists, journalists, political dissidents. But not all states are as as wide-ranging as that? No, so Russia prefers to go after more specific targets. Ordinary Russian citizens are usually safe from the eyes of the Kremlin, but outspoken political opponents of the regime, such as Alexei Navalny, and former insiders are vulnerable because they think they might spill Putin's secrets abroad. And you make a distinction between direct attacks and uh, surveillance and the like. I mean, what, what are the direct attacks like? Direct attacks can involve physical attacks like murder, assault. Most of us are familiar with the murder of Jamal Hashogi, the Saudi journalist who was dismembered in an Istanbul consulate. But these are actually quite rare. What's more common is for regimes to want to deport 
or illegally detain people and to get them back home so that they can torture them and even execute them. Many states also have more subtle forms of harassing people, taking someone's passport, threatening someone's family at home, and even using spyware or malware to harass them online. And so how is it that these regimes are able to get away with this stuff when when it happens on foreign soil? Many countries rely on the help of friendly allies. So, for example, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, which is a security pact of China, Russia, India and five other Central Asian countries, they've actually got a blacklist so that they can each check up on each other's dissidents. Others rely on help from democracies, which might not always be on purpose. There was a case last year with a Tajik political activist called Hezbollah Shavalizoda, who was in Austria, and the Tajik government applied for him to be extradited. The Austrians agreed, and he's now serving 20 years in prison for terrorism charges. Other ways that states can do this is by using Interpol, which is an international policing system. You can issue red notices to alert fellow countries that you'd like to arrest someone. And these are being used and exploited by many regimes, particularly Russia, as a way of snaring opponents and getting them back home. And then the other way that you can do this is just by calling someone a terrorist. 58% of the victims Freedom House found had been labelled a terrorist. And this has become a lot easier after 9-11. And the indications are that this kind of transnational repression is, is on the rise. Why might that be? I think the main reason has to be technology. Nowadays, everyone's got a smartphone. It's really easy for people's movements to be tracked, for them to be monitored, and for regimes to hear what's being said about them. In 2018, there was an exposure of Pegasus spyware by Citizen Lab, who showed that several regimes were using WhatsApp and other social media apps to spy and to target activists who live abroad. These sorts of things are becoming more and more common. China can use WeChat, which is a messaging app used by millions of Chinese abroad. Saudi Arabia even got a backdoor into Twitter through a Saudi engineer that they bribed to pass on the physical legations of people. And so it's just the ease and and ubiquity of technology that makes it easier for states to do this? Yeah, I think so. Rwanda is a striking example of this. The government has been cracking down on anyone that challenges it or questions its image abroad. Rwanda, as many people know, experienced a genocide in the 1990s. And how this sort of history is reported is a very sensitive issue for the regime. Like China, Rwanda tries to use social media to control what people think. It uses spyware and it uses a coercive network of embassies and expat organisations to intimidate people. And you have to realise that Rwanda is one of the smallest African countries and relatively poor. So the scope of this repressive network is incredible. You might remember the film Hotel Rwanda, which told the story of a hotelier called Paul Rusesa Begina. He saved Tutsis during the genocide. How many? We have 100 staff and now more than 800 guests. 800? Yes, sir. There are now 800 Tutsi and Hutu refugees. We do not have much time left, sir. That film was based on real events and real people. And now the real Mr. Rusesa Begina was kidnapped last year in Dubai and taken back to Rwanda. He's been since charged with terrorism, but most people think that it's because he's been an outspoken critic of the Rwandan president, Paul Kagame. So if cheap and widespread tech is is such a big driver here, what can be done to slow or even reverse this trend you describe? 
One reason that states have been able to get away with this so long is that democracies often look the other way. We need to be holding these states more accountable for their actions and making these behaviours a bit riskier to do. One way to do this is to tackle the Interpol abuses where people exploit the red notices. But another way is also to protect the victims more. So this could be things like strengthening asylum systems and refugee systems and helping communities get more involved with their host countries. I think it's also really important to be aware that these sorts of attacks aren't just limited to these kind of movie-style assassination attacks. They also affect everyday people and can cause a lot of damage. Georgia, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Jason. Hassan Huisha lives in Algiers, the capital of Algeria. He bought his Volkswagen car in 2013 for around $13,000. Few assets lose their value more quickly than cars, but eight years and 280,000 kilometers later, Mr. Huisha has been offered the same price from a willing buyer. Yet he doesn't want to sell. Why? because government policy has made cars extremely hard to come by. This car shortage happening now in Algeria has been building for several years, but it got really nasty over the past year. Eric Connect writes about North Africa for The Economist. In 2016, they effectively banned car imports to save hard currency. And at the time, they were trying to set up their own automobile manufacturing industry, but that sort of just all fell apart. So in the meantime, the shortage in the last few years has gotten worse and worse. And in this past year, with absolutely no cars being produced and none being imported, prices just went absolutely insane. The prices of of cars that are even used have doubled in some cases over the past year. So why are they banning car imports? So the reason they're banning cars comes down to a really nasty shortage of foreign currency that's been building for several years. And that is because about 90% of Algeria's foreign currency earnings comes from oil and gas. Back in 2014, Before the energy prices really slumped, they had almost $200 billion in foreign currency reserves. And by the end of 2020, they have probably somewhere in the range of 45 to 50 billion. And economists say on the current trajectory, they could run out in as little as two years. And you're seeing the effect of this with the government trying to do whatever it can to stop cash from leaving the country. Cars are a really, really big expenditure. And so it's not just cars. They're trying to stop people from buying all sorts of items from abroad to save cash. So what else are they restricting then? In the last year, as things have gotten more desperate, the government has also cut back on nearly anything it can to save cash. They've halved the investment of their state oil firm because much of the spending is done in foreign currency. They've put tariffs on all sorts of items from chocolates and cell phones to home appliances. They even banned red meat imports. A pretty telling example was last month, the CEO of Air Algeria and the transport minister were both sacked because it came to light that they allowed hard currency to be spent for catering services like utensils for the national carrier. And so the idea was to to build cars in Algeria and therefore not have to, to import them, I guess. Yeah, so back in 2016, or even a little bit before that, they made a focus on building national industries. They started making partnerships with foreign automakers like Kia, Hyundai, Renault came, Peugeot. And the idea was that they would set up local assembly plants. They were billing it to the population as the first step to building this big automotive manufacturing industry. But what it turned out was they were just importing all the components and doing only assembly. So the cars turned out 
costing more than the imports and still using hard currency. So this angered a lot of Algerians. Well, you can see why. I mean, how did things go so badly? These card deals were made under the previous president, Abdelaziz Bouteflika, and his ministers made these deals with a lot of top businessmen. And they were seen as extremely corrupt deals that were given to cronies of the regime. So when Abdelaziz Bouteflika was overthrown in 2019, these individuals became a target for corruption probes going on at the time. And the court case that just happened, and there was a ruling last month upholding jail sentences for several of the men, is seen as holding some of the men in the previous regime accountable for actions that really undermined the economy. But if some of the rot has been pulled out, what does that say for what might happen with Algerian car making? There is some cause for optimism in Algeria that they're now trying to strike new deals with foreign automakers to restart some of these plants. They want to make the focus on local production. So they're going to create stricter requirements for building up the percentage at which the local components are used. Now, the problem with that is that it's unclear what automakers are going to jump at this because there's not a big history of car making. So the local supply chain is very weak. They'll argue that meeting these requirements is very difficult. So it's quite telling that they've announced that they're doing this for several months and we still haven't seen any deals. You say, for example, tariffs are going up on on everything up to and including red meat. Are more shortages on the horizon, do you think? There could be more shortages. It's really difficult to say. If energy prices rise, they'll have more cash to play with. There probably won't be much of an issue. But if they drop again, as they did during the beginning of the pandemic, then Algeria is in a lot of trouble. So it's unclear if anything will be short, but a lot of tough decisions are going to have to be made. Eric, thanks very much for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, leave us a rating and a review. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. See you back here tomorrow. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.